Chapter Five of Clover. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Clover by Susan Coolidge. Chapter Five, Car Forty Seven. It is they who stay behind who suffer most from leave takings. Those who go have the continual change of scenes and impressions to help them forget. Those who remain must bear as best they may the dull, heavy sense of loss and separation. The parting at Burnett was not a cheerful one. Clover was oppressed with the nearness of untried responsibilities, and though she kept up a brave face, she was inwardly homesick. Phil slept badly the night before the start, and looked so wan and thin as he stood on the steamer's deck beside his sisters, waving good-bye to the party on the wharf, that a new and sharp thrill of anxiety shot through his father's heart. The boy looked so young and helpless to be sent away ill among strangers, and round-faced little Clover seemed such a fragile support. There was no help for it. The thing was decided on, decided for the best, as they all hoped, but Dr. Carr was not at all happy in his mind as he watched the steamer become a gradually lessening speck in the distance and he sighed heavily when at last he turned away. Elsie echoed the sigh. She, too, had noticed Phil's looks and Papa's gravity, and her heart felt heavy within her. The house, when they reached it, seemed lonely and empty. Papa went at once to his office, and they heard him lock the door. This was such an unusual proceeding in the middle of the morning that she and Johnny opened wide eyes of dismay at each other. "'Is Papa crying, do you suppose?' whispered John. "'No, I don't think it can be that. Papa never does cry. "'But I'm afraid he's feeling badly,' responded Elsie, in the same hushed tone. "'Oh, dear, how horrid it is not even to have Clover at home. "'What are we going to do without her and Katie?' "'I don't know, I'm sure. "'You can't think how queer I feel, Elsie, "'just as if my heart had slipped out of its place.' and was going down, down into my boots. I think it must be the way people feel when they are homesick. I had it once before when I was at Inches Mills, but never since then. How I wish Philly had never gone to skate on that nasty pond! And John burst into a passion of tears. Oh, don't, don't! cried poor Elsie, for Johnny's sobs were infectious, and she felt an ominous lump coming into her own throat. "'Don't behave so, Johnny. Think, if Papa came out and found us crying. Clover particularly said that we must make the house bright for him. I'm going to sow the mignonette seed, desperately. Come and help me. The trowel is on the back porch, and you might get Dory's jackknife and cut some little sticks to mark the places.' This expedient was successful. Johnny, who loved to whittle above all things, dried her tears and ran for her shade-hat and by the time the tiny brown seeds were sprinkled into the brown earth of the borders, both the girls were themselves again. Dr. Carr appeared from his retirement half an hour later. A note had come for him meanwhile, but somehow no one had quite liked to knock at the door and deliver it. Elsie handed it to him now with a timid, anxious look, whose import seemed to strike him, for he laughed a little and pinched her cheek as he read. "'I've been writing to Dr. Hope about the children,' he said. "'That's all. Don't wait dinner for me, chicks. "'I'm off for the corners to see a boy who's had a fall, and I'll get a bite there. "'Order something good for tea, Elsie, "'and afterward we'll have a game of cribbage if I'm not called out. 
"'We must be as jolly as we can, or Clover will scold us when she comes back.' Meanwhile the three travellers were faring through the first stage of their journey very comfortably. The fresh air and change brightened Phil. He ate a good dinner, and afterward took quite a long nap on a sofa, Clover sitting by him to keep him covered and see that he did not get cold. Late in the evening they changed to the express train, and there again Phil, after being tucked up behind the curtains of his section, went to sleep and passed a satisfactory night so that he reached Chicago looking so much better than when they left Burnett that his father's heart would have been lightened could he have seen him. Mrs. Ashe came down to the station to meet them, together with Mr. Dayton, a kind, friendly man with a tired but particularly pleasant face. All the necessary transfer of baggage, etc., was made easy, and they were carried off at once to the hotel where rooms had been secured. There they were rapturously received by Amy and introduced to Mrs. Dayton, a sweet, spirited little matron, with a face as kindly as her husband's, but not so worn. Mr. Dayton looked as if for years he had been bearing the whole weight of a railroad on his shoulders, as in one sense it may be said that he had. "'We have been here almost a whole day,' said Amy, who had taken possession, as a matter of course, of her old perch on Katie's knee. "'Chicago is the biggest place you ever saw, Tonta, but it isn't so pretty as Burnett. And, oh!' "'Don't you think Car 47 is nice? "'The one we are going out west in, you know? "'And this morning Mr. Dayton took us to see it. "'It's the cunningest place that ever was. "'There's one dear little drawer in the wall "'that Mrs. Dayton says I may have to keep Mabel's things in. "'I never saw a drawer in a car before. "'There's a lovely little bedroom, too, "'and such a nice washing basin, and a kitchen, "'and all sorts of things. "'I can hardly wait till I show them to you.' "'Don't you think that travelling is the most delightful thing in the world, Miss Clover?' "'Yes, if only people don't get too tired,' said Clover, with an anxious glance at Phil as he lay back in an easy chair. She did not dare say, "'If Phil doesn't get too tired,' for she had already discovered that nothing annoyed him so much as being talked about as an invalid, and that he was very apt to revenge himself by doing something imprudent immediately afterward.' to disguise from an observant world the fact that he couldn't do it without running a risk. Like most boys, he resented being fussed over, a fact which made the care of him more difficult than it would otherwise have been. The room which had been taken for Clover and Katie looked out on the lake, which was not far away, and the reach of blue water would have made a pretty view if trains of cars had not continually steamed between it and the hotel, staining the sky and blurring the prospect with their smokes. Katie wondered how it happened that the early settlers who laid up Chicago had not bethought themselves to secure this fine water frontage as an ornament to the future city. But Mr. Dayton explained that in the rapid growth of western towns, things arranged themselves rather than were arranged for, and that the first pioneers had other things to think about than what a New Englander would call sightliness, and Katie could easily believe this to be true. Car 47 was on the track when they drove to the station at noon next day, it was the end car of a long express train, which, Mr. Dayton told them, is considered a place of honour, and generally assigned to private cars. It was of an old-fashioned pattern, and did not compare, as they were informed, with the palaces on wheels built nowadays for the use of railroad presidents and directors. But though Katie heard of cars with French beds, plunge baths, open fireplaces, and other incredible luxuries, car 47 still seemed to her inexperienced eyes and clovers, a marvel of comfort and convenience. 
a small kitchen, a store closet, and a sort of baggage room fitted with berths for two servants occupied the end of the car nearest the engine. Then came a dressing closet, with ample marble basins where hot water as well as cold was always on tap. Then a wide stateroom, with a bed on either side, and then a large compartment occupying the middle of the car, where, by day, four nice little dining-tables could be set, with a seat on either side, and by night six sleeping sections made up. The rest of the car was arranged as a sitting-room, glassed all round, and furnished with comfortable seats of various kinds, a writing-desk, two or three tables of different sizes, and various small lockers and receptacles, fitted into the partitions to serve as catch-alls for loose articles of all sorts. Bunches of lovely roses and baskets of strawberries stood on the tables, and quite a number of the Dayton's friends had come down to see them off, each bringing some sort of a good-bye gift for the travellers flowers, hothouse grapes, early cherries, or homemade cake. They were all so cordial and pleasant, and so interested in Phil, that Katie and Clover lost their hearts to each in turn, and forever afterward were ready to stand up for Chicago as the kindest place that was ever seen. Then, amid farewells and good wishes, the train moved slowly out of the station, and the inmates of Car 47 proceeded to go to housekeeping, as Mrs. Dayton expressed it, and to settle themselves and their belongings in these new quarters. Mrs. Ashe and Amy, it was decided, should occupy the stateroom, and the other ladies were to dress there when it was convenient. Sections were assigned to everybody, Clover's opposite Phil's, so that she might hear him if he needed anything in the night, and Mr. Dayton called for all the bonnets and hats, and amid much laughter proceeded to pin up each in thick folds of newspaper, and fasten it on a hook not to be taken down till the end of the journey. Mabel's feathered turban took its turn with the rest at Amy's particular request. Dust was the main thing to be guarded against, and Katie, having been duly forewarned, had gone out in the morning and bought for herself and Clover soft hats of whitey-gray felt and veils of the same color, like those which Mrs. Dayton and Polly had provided for the journey, and which had the advantage of being light as well as unspoilable. But there was no dust that first morning, as the train ran smoothly across the fertile prairies of Illinois first, and then of Iowa, between fields dazzling with the fresh green of wheat and rye, and waysides studded with such wild flowers as none of them had ever seen or dreamed of before. Pink spikes and white and vivid blue spikes, masses of brown and orange cups like low-growing tulips, ranks of beautiful vetches and purple lupins, escultsias like immense sweeps of golden sunlight, wild sweet peas, trumpet-shaped blossoms whose name no one knew, all flung broadcast over the face of the land, and in such stintless quantities that it dazzled the mind to think of as it did the eyes to behold them. The low-lying horizons looked infinitely far off. The sense of space was confusing. Here and there appeared a homestead, backed with a break-wind of thickly planted trees, but the general impression was of vast, still distance, endless reaches of sky, and uncounted flowers growing for their own pleasure and with no regard for human observation. In studying Car 47, Katie was much impressed by the thoroughness of Mrs. Dayton's preparations for the comfort of her party. Everything that could possibly be needed seemed to have been thought of. Pins, cologne, sewing materials— all sorts of softening washes for the skin to be used on the alkaline plains, sponges to wet and fasten into the crowns of hats, other sponges to breathe through, medicines of various kinds, sticking plaster, witch hazel and arnica, whisk brooms, 
piles of magazines and novels, telegraph blanks, stationery. Nothing seemed forgotten. Clover said that it reminded her of the mother of the Swiss family Robinson, and that wonderful bag out of which everything was produced that could be thought of, from a grand piano to a bottle of pickles. And after that, Mrs. Robinson became Mrs. Dayton's pet name among her fellow travellers. She adopted it cheerfully, and her wonderful bag, proving quite as unfailing and trustworthy as that of her prototype, the title seemed justified. Pretty soon after starting came their first dinner on the car. Such a nice one! Soup, roast chicken and lamb, green peas, new potatoes, stewed tomato, all as hot and as perfectly served as if they had been on dry land, as Amy phrased it. There was fresh curly lettuce, too, with mayonnaise dressing, and a dessert of strawberries and ice cream, the latter made and frozen on the car, whose resources seemed inexhaustible. The cook had been attached to car 47 for some years, and had a celebrity on his own road for the preparation of certain dishes, which no one else could do as well, however many markets and refrigerators and kitchen ranges might be at command. One of these dishes was a peculiar form of cracked wheat, made crisp and savory after some mysterious fashion, and eaten with thick cream. Like most chefs, the cook liked to do the things in which he excelled, and finding that it was admired, he gave the party this delicious wheat every morning. "'The car seems paved with bottles of Apollinaris and with lemons,' wrote Katie to her father. "'There seems no limit to the supply.' Just as surely as it grows warm and dusty, and we begin to remember that we are thirsty, a tinkle is heard, and Bayard appears with a tray, iced lemonade, if you please, made with Apollinaris water and strawberries floating on top. What do you think of that at thirty miles an hour? Bayard is the colored butler. The cook is named Roland. We have a fine flavor of peers and paladins among us, you perceive. The first day out was cool and delicious, and we had no dust. At six o'clock we stopped at a junction, and our car was detached and run off on a siding. This was because Mr. Dayton had business in the place, and we were to wait and be taken on by the next express train soon after midnight. At first they ran us down to a pretty place by the side of the river, where it was cool, and we could look out on the water and a green bank opposite, and we thought we were going to have such a nice night. But the authorities changed their minds, and presently, to our deep disgust, a locomotive came puffing down the road, clawed us up, ran us back, and finally left us in the middle of innumerable tracks and switches just where all the freight trains came in and met. All night long they were arriving and going out, cars loaded with cattle, cars loaded with sheep, with pigs, such bleedings and mooings and gruntings I never heard in all my life before. I could think of nothing but that verse in the Psalms. Strong bowls of Bashan have beset me around, and could only hope that the poor animals did not feel half as badly as they sounded. Then long before light, as we lay listening to these lamentable roarings and grunts, and quite unable to sleep for heat and noise, came the blessed express, and presently we were away out of all the din, with the fresh air of the prairie blowing in, and in no time at all we were so sound asleep that it seemed but a minute before morning. Phil's slumbers lasted so long that we had to breakfast without him, for Mrs. Dayton would not let us wake him up. You can't think how kind she is, and Mr. Dayton too, and this way of traveling is so easy and delightful that it scarcely seems to tire one at all. Phil has borne the journey wonderfully well so far. At Omaha, on the evening of the second day, Clover's future matron and adviser, Mrs. Watson, was to join them, 
She had been telegraphed to from Chicago, and had replied, so that they knew she was expecting them. Clover's thoughts were so occupied with curiosity as to what she would turn out to be, that she scarcely realized that she was crossing the Mississippi for the first time, and she gave scant attention to the low bluffs which bound the river, and on which the Indians used to hold their councils in those dim days, when there was still an undiscovered west set down in geographies and atlases. As soon as they reached the Omaha side of the river, she and Katie jumped down from the car, and immediately found themselves face to face with an anxious-looking little old lady, with white hair frizzled and banged over a puckered forehead, and a pair of watery blue eyes peering from beneath, evidently in search of somebody. Her hands were quite full of bags and parcels, and a little heap of similar articles lay on the platform near her, of which she seemed afraid to lose sight for a moment. "'Oh, is it Miss Carr?' was her first salutation. "'I'm Mrs. Watson. I thought it might be you, from the fact that you got out of that car, and it seems rather different. I am quite relieved to see you. I didn't know but something—my daughter, she said to me as I was coming away, "'Now, mother, don't lose yourself, whatever you do. It seems quite wild to think of you in Canyon this, and Canyon that, and the Garden of the Gods.' Do go and get someone to keep an eye on you, or we shall never hear of you again. You'll—it's quite a comfort that you have got here. I supposed you would, but the uncertainty—oh, dear! That man is carrying off my trunks. Please run after him and tell him to bring them back. Oh, it's all right. He's the porter, explained Mr. Dayton. Did you get your checks for Denver or St. Helens? Oh, I haven't any checks yet. I didn't know which it ought to be, so I waited. Miss Carr and her brother would see to it for me, I knew. And I wrote my daughter, my friend Mrs. Peters, I've been staying with her, you know, was sick in bed and I wouldn't let— Dear me! What has that gentleman gone off for in such a hurry? He has gone off to get your checks, said Clover, divided between diversion and dismay at this specimen of her future matron. We only stay here a few minutes, I believe. Do you know exactly when the train starts, Mrs. Watson? "'No, dear, I don't. I never know anything about trains and things like that. Somebody always has to tell me and put me on the cars. I shall trust to you and your brother to do that now. It's a great comfort to have a gentleman to see to things for you.' "'A gentleman. Poor Philly.' Mr. Dayton now came back to them. It was lucky that he knew the station and was used to the ways of railroads, for it appeared that Mrs. Watson had made no arrangements whatever for her journey, but had blindly devolved the care of herself and her belongings on her young friends, as she called Clover and Phil. She had no sleeping section secured and no tickets, and they had to be procured at the last moment and in such a scramble that the last of her parcels was handed on to the platform by a porter, at full run, after the train was in motion. She was not at all flurried by the commotion, though others were, and blandly repeated that she knew from the beginning that all would be right as soon as Miss Carr and her brother arrived. Mrs. Dayton had sent a courteous invitation to the old lady to come to Carr 47 for tea, but Mrs. Watson did not at all like being left alone meantime, and held fast to Clover when the others moved to go. "'I'm used to being a good deal looked after,' she explained. All the family know my ways, and they never do let me be alone much. I'm taken faint sometimes, and the doctor says it's my heart or something that's the cause of it. So my daughter, she—you ain't going, my dear, are you? I must look after my brother, said poor Clover. He's been ill, you know, and this is the time for his medicine. Dear me, is he ill? said Mrs. Watson, in an aggrieved tone. I wasn't prepared for that. "'You'll have your hands pretty full with him and me both, won't you? "'For though I'm well enough just now, there's no knowing what a day might bring forth, "'and you're all I have to depend upon. 
"'You're sure you must go? "'It seemed as if your sister, Mrs. Worthing, is that the name, "'might see to the medicine and give you a little freedom. "'But don't let your brother be too exacting, dear. "'It is the worst thing for a young man. "'I'll sit here a little while, and then I'll... "'The conductor will help me, I suppose, "'or perhaps that gentleman might. "'I hate to be left by myself.' "'These were the last words which Clover heard as she escaped.' She entered car 47 with such a rueful and disgusted countenance that everybody burst out laughing. "'What is the matter, Miss Clover?' asked Mr. Dayton. "'Has your old lady left something after all?' "'Don't call her my old lady. I'm supposed to be her young lady under her charge,' said Clover, trying to smile. But the moment she got Katie to herself she burst out with, "'My dear, what am I going to do? It's really too dreadful!' "'Instead of someone to help me, which is what Papa meant, "'Mrs. Watson seems to depend on me to take all the care of her, "'and she says she has fainting fits and disease of the heart. "'How can I take care of her? "'Phil needs me all the time, and a great deal more than she does. "'I don't see how I can.' "'You can't, of course. "'You are here to take care of Phil, "'and it is out of the question that you should have another person to look after. "'But I think you must mistake, Mrs. Watson, Clovey.' I know that Mrs. Hall wrote plainly about Phil's illness, for she showed me the letter. "'Just wait till you hear her talk,' cried the exasperated Clover. "'You will find that I didn't mistake her at all. Oh, why did Mrs. Hall interfere? It would all seem so easy in comparison, so perfectly easy, if only Philly and I were alone together.' Katie thought that Clover was fretted and disposed to exaggerate. But after Mrs. Watson joined them a little later, she changed her opinion. The old lady was an inveterate talker, and her habit of only half finishing her sentences made it difficult to follow the meanderings of her rambling discourse. It turned largely on her daughter, Mrs. Phillips, her husband, children, house, furniture, habits, tastes, and the Phillips connection generally. "'She's the only one I've got,' she informed Mrs. Dayton, "'so of course she's all important to me.' "'Jane Phillips, that's Henry's youngest sister, "'often says that really of all the women she ever knew, "'Ellen is the most, and there's plenty to do always, of course, "'with three children and such a large, elegant house "'and company coming all the... "'It's lucky that there's plenty to do with. "'Henry's very liberal. "'He likes to have things nice, so Ellen, she... "'Why, when I was packing up to come away, "'he bought me that rebousse fruit-knife there in my bag. "'Oh, it's in my other bag, never mind. "'I'll show it to you some other time. "'Solid silver, you know.' "'Bigelow and Kennard, their things always good, though expensive. "'And my son-in-law, he said, "'You're going to a fruit country, "'and Mrs. Peters doesn't think there's so much fruit, though. "'All sent on from California, as I wrote, "'and I guess Ellen and Henry were surprised to hear it.' "'Katie held serious counsel with herself that night "'as to what she could do about this extraordinary guide, "'philosopher, and friend whom the fates had provided for Clover.' She saw that her father, from very over-anxiety, had made a mistake, and complicated Clover's inevitable cares with a most undesirable companion, who would add to rather than relieve them. She could not decide what was best to do, and in fact the time was short for doing anything, for the next evening would bring them to Denver, and poor Clover must be left to face the situation by herself as best she might. Katie finally concluded to write her father plainly how things stood, and beg him to set Clover's mind quite at rest as to any responsibility for Mrs. Watson, and also to have a talk with that lady herself, and explain matters as clearly as she could. It seemed all that was in her power. Next day the party woke to a wonderful sense of lightness and exhilaration, which no one could account for, 
till the conductor told them that the apparently level plain over which they were speeding was more than four thousand feet above the sea. It seemed impossible to believe it. Hour by hour they climbed, but the climb was imperceptible. Now four thousand six hundred feet of elevation was reported, now four thousand eight hundred, at last above five thousand, and still there seemed about them nothing but a vast expanse of flat levels, the tablelands of Nebraska. There was little that was beautiful in the landscape, which was principally made up of wide reaches of sand, dotted with cactus and greasewood, and with the droll cone-shaped burrows of the prairie dogs, who could be seen gravely sitting on the roofs of their houses, or turning sudden somersaults in at the holes on top as the train whizzed by. They passed and repassed long links of a broad, shallow river, which the maps showed to be the Platte, and which seemed to be made of two-thirds sand to one-third water. Now and again mounted horsemen appeared in the distance, whom Mr. Dayton said were cowboys, but no cows were visible, and the rapidly moving figures were neither as picturesque nor as formidable as they had expected them to be. Flowers were still abundant, and their splendid masses gave the charm of color to the rather arid landscape. Soon after noon dim blue outlines came into view, which grew rapidly bolder and more distinct, and revealed themselves as the Rocky Mountains the backbone of the American continent, of which we have all heard so much in geographies and the newspapers. It was delightful, in spite of dust and glare, to sit with that sweep of magnificent air rushing into their lungs, and watch the great ranges grow and grow and deepen in hue, till they seemed close at hand. To Katie they were like enchanted land. Somewhere on the other side of them, on the dim Pacific coast, her husband was waiting for her to come and the wheels seemed to revolve with a regular rhythmic beat to the cadence of the old Scotch song, And will I see his face again? And will I hear him speak? But to Clover the wheels sang something less jubilant, and she studied the mountains on her little travelling map, and measured their distance from Burnett with a sigh. They were the walls of what seemed to her a sort of prison, as she realized that presently she should be left alone among them, Katie and Polly gone, and these new friends whom she had learned to like so much, left alone with Phil and, what was worse, with Mrs. Watson. There was a comic side to the latter situation, undoubtedly, but at the moment she could not enjoy it. Katie carried out her intention. She made a long call on Mrs. Watson in her section, and listened patiently to her bemoanings over the noise of the car which had kept her from sleeping. The lady in grey over there, who had taken such a long time to dress in the morning that she, Mrs. Watson, could not get into the toilet room at the precise moment that she wished. The newspaper boy who would not let her just glance over, the Denver Republican, unless she bought and paid for it. "'And I only wanted to see the Washington News, my dear, and something about a tin wedding in East Dedham. My mother came from there, and I recognized one of the names, and but he took it away quite rudely. And when I complained, the conductor wouldn't attend to what I—' and the bad piece of beefsteak which had been brought for her breakfast at the Eden station. Katie soothed and comforted to the best of her ability, and then plunged into her subject, explaining Phil's very delicate condition and the necessity for constant watchfulness on the part of Clover, and saying most distinctly and in the plainest of English that Mrs. Watson must not expect Clover to take care of her too. The old lady was not in the least offended, but her replies were so incoherent that Katie was not sure that she understood the matter any better for the explanation. 
"'Certainly, my dear, certainly. "'Your brother doesn't appear so very sick, "'but he must be looked after, of course. "'Boys always must be. "'I'll remind your sister if she seems to be forgetting anything. "'I hope I shall keep well myself, "'so as not to be a worry to her. "'And we can take little excursions together, I dare say. "'Girls always like to go, and of course an older person. "'Oh, no, your brother won't need her so much as you think. "'He seems pretty strong to me, "'and you mustn't worry about them, Mrs. Worthing.' "'We shall all get on very well, I'm sure, provided I don't break down. "'And I guess I shan't, though they say that almost everyone does in this air. "'Why, we shall be as high up as the top of Mount Washington!' Katie went back to 47 in despair, "'to comfort herself with a long confidential chat with Clover "'in which she exhorted her not to let herself be imposed upon. "'Be good to her and make her as happy as you can, "'but don't feel bound to wait on her and run her errands.' I'm sure Papa would not wish it, and will half kill you if you attempt it. Phil, till he gets stronger, is all you can manage. You not only have to nurse him, you know, but to keep him happy. It's so bad for him to mope. You want all your time to read with him and take walks and drives, that is, if there are any carriages at St. Helen's. Don't let Mrs. Watson seize upon you, Clover. I'm awfully afraid that she means to, and I can see that she is a real old woman of the sea— once she gets on your back, you will never be able to throw her off. She shall not get on my back, said Clover, straightening her small figure. But doesn't it seem unnecessary that I should have an old woman of the sea to grapple with as well as Phil? Provoking things are apt to seem unnecessary, I fancy. You mustn't let yourself get worried, dear Clovy. The old lady means kindly enough, I think, only she's naturally tiresome, and has become helpless from habit. Be nice to her, but hold your own. Self-preservation is the first law of nature. Just at dusk the train reached Denver, and the dreaded moment of parting came. There were kisses and tearful goodbyes, but not much time was allowed for either. The last glimpse that Clover had of Katie was as the train moved away, when she put her head far out of the window of car 47, to kiss her hand once more and call back, in a tone oracular and solemn enough to suit King Charles I, his own admonitory word, Remember! End of chapter 5 Recording by Hannah Mary